Hey, if you got your Bible, though, why don't we turn to Luke chapter 8? And we're in Luke chapter 8 this morning. Um, first three verses of Luke chapter 8. I'm going to go ahead and read those. I'll pray. And then uh, we'll dive in to the text together. Luke writes this in chapter 8 of his gospel. He says, Soon afterward, soon after, actually, it's just right after the passage we were in last Sunday. Soon afterward, he went on, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Let me pray, and then we're going to look at this passage together this morning. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thank you for your grace to us through him. Um, Father, I pray this morning that as we study your word that you would um, uh, really make evident to us the way, Jesus, that, that you're willing and able and excited to use anyone. And uh, as we see this morning, something that's in that day totally countercultural, Jesus, that you um, brought women alongside you to serve in ministry, that you engaged them with your teaching, that um, they were a vital part of the early church and are still to this day, um, that, that you really totally flipped a lot of cultural norms and a lot of things on its head and uh, brought your kingdom. And we see an example of how your kingdom functions here this morning. So I pray as I, as I teach these things, you'd encourage us with that truth and you'd encourage each of us uh, even as we heard from the students this morning, to, to be present in our church, to be engaged with one another, and uh, both in friendship and in ministry. And uh, Holy Spirit, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects, he would take your word and use it to discourage us or to accuse us or to just twist it and tempt us somehow. Instead, teach us, oh, Spirit, I pray. Uh, let us change and uh, be made new as we leave. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 8, Luke says, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. And the twelve were with him. Soon afterwards, well, soon after what? I kind of said this already, but this is soon after last week we saw Jesus eating at Simon the Pharisee's house. He went over to Simon the Pharisee's house, had lunch, and this woman, uh, a woman of the city whose name we aren't given, but who is probably a prostitute, comes in and begins washing his feet. And I think the order of this, that Luke includes this, right after this encounter Jesus had with this woman, isn't by accident. And I want you to keep that order of events in mind here as we go forward, because it's right after this, right after Jesus heals this woman, that, that we see Jesus serving alongside women. And Jesus went on through cities and villages, he proclaimed and he brought the good news of the kingdom. He, he proclaimed it. He spoke it. He, he brought it. He brought good works and good deeds into these cities and villages in Galilee, demonstrating the kingdom. And people were blessed because of Jesus' works. He brought the good news. And we learn here in just this introductory sentence that the 12 were with him. The 12 disciples were along, but it wasn't just them. Sometimes we think about Jesus going out in ministry and we think, oh, it was Jesus and his 12 disciples. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, he's the pastor, they're the board of elders, and they just go out and do all the ministry. 
And that's not how it worked. It's not even close to how it worked. Because there were so many more who were along with him, so many more who were called followers and disciples of Jesus who served in ministry. At different times, he sends up to 72 out at a time. And in this case, we see it's not just a man's game. James Brown is wrong. Not a man's world, right? No, 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 listen. It, Jesus has women serving alongside him in ministry. See, also some women. These women had been, had been healed of different uh, diseases, evil spirits, infirmities. And it's right after he forgives this sinful woman that now he, he serves alongside women. And you need to know that this was totally new in Jesus' day. This was, this was unheard of. Totally unheard of. It's common today to hear people criticize Christianity and criticize the Bible as being um, a misogynistic document. You know what misogyny is? Misogyny means that uh, a man who hates women or who distrusts women. And that's misogynistic. And a lot of people will view uh, teaching in Scripture or the church as being misogynistic. But when you look at the way Jesus taught, or, uh, taught and, and treated women, uh, it's so far from the truth. There's no such thing there. There's no question that there are major, uh, major characters in the Bible. Most of them are men. That's true. But, but there's some really key women in Scripture as well. Women like Ruth and Naomi and Esther and Deborah, who is a judge and a ruler, are, are, are key among them. But Luke in particular, in his gospel, he really highlights Jesus' ministry with and alongside women and the role of women in ministry. You know what's curious is Jesus never... See, those people who say that the Bible is just a misogynistic, patriarchal document, whatever, and it's, it's, it's anti-women. They, they're, not, they're not looking at what Jesus did. Because Jesus never denigrated women. He never acted in a chauvinistic manner. He never victimized women in any way. He never told any crass jokes about women. He, never, he always showed them great respect and compassion, just like he did everyone else. And I would commend to you this, that, that the coming of Jesus Christ and the dawn of Christianity has done more to advance the cause of and honor of women than anything and anyone else in human history. There is nothing else that has advanced the cause of women and the honor of women in society more than Christianity. And if you need, if, if you need some proof about this, there's places all over the world today where women are still denied basic human rights in societies. And you'll find out those societies are ones where Christianity hasn't taken root. If you need an example of this, just go to any present-day Islamic country. Here, women are still denied many rights that are available to men. When they appear in public, they have to be veiled. In Saudi Arabia, for instance, do you know women cannot drive a car in Saudi Arabia? Just a year ago, there were two women who were jailed. One was 25, one was 33, and they were thrown in jail for, for driving a car. And they were kept in jail for almost a month, and the court that they were tried in was a court that was set up uh, to try terrorists in Saudi Arabia in their high court in Riyadh, in their capital. Isn't that crazy? So in Saudi Arabia, Saudi women driving is equated with Saudi men who crashed planes into the World Trade Center. That's messed up, Right? But that's the truth. Christianity hasn't taken root there. Christianity has done more for women than anything else in human history. In many Arab countries under Sharia law, did you know men are allowed to beat their wives? 
This came up for trial in the United Arab Emirates recently. There's different views on this within Islam. But, but usually some of the stricter, more traditional uh, Muslims will say, no, that's okay. And in fact, here, I'll just read to you a little bit from, from some of the argument about it. It came up recently in a court case in the United Arab Emirates, and the high court ruled men could beat their wives and young children so long as they didn't leave any marks. This is the polar opposite of what the New Testament teaches. See, one, one uh, guy, Dr. Ahmed Kubasi, the head of Sharia studies at Baghdad University, said under Sharia law, beating one's wife was an option to prevent the breakdown of the family. He said it should be used only as a substitute to resorting to the police. If a wife committed something wrong, a husband can report it to the police. But sometimes she doesn't do a serious enough thing or he doesn't want to let others know. And when that's not a good option for a family. So in this case, beating is a better option. I'd say it's a place where Christianity has not taken root. And listen, that, that was the ancient Near East world before Jesus showed up on the scene. It's the polar opposite of what Jesus taught in the New Testament. Jesus loved women and he treated them with great respect and with great dignity. In the New Testament, Paul told husbands, don't beat your wives. He said, love them like Jesus loves the church. If she's going to take a beating, you take it for her. Lay down your life for her like Jesus laid down his life for the church. Right? That's what the New Testament teaches. That's what Christianity teaches. And Jesus' value of women, it wasn't shared by his culture. In Greco-Roman culture, it simply was not shared by other societies in Jesus' day. For instance, in ancient Greece, a respectable woman was not allowed to leave the house unless she was accompanied by a trustworthy male escort. A wife was not permitted to eat or interact with male guests in her husband's home. She had to retire to her women's quarters. Men kept the wives under lock and key, and women had the, women had the social status of a slave in Jesus' day. That's reality. Women had the social status of a slave. Girls were not allowed to go to school, and when they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. Women weren't educated. When a rabbi would have teaching and he would, he would have disciples sitting at his feet learning and being taught, you know who is not present among them? Women. That's why last week, that scene where Jesus is reclining at the table with other men, other teachers of the law, and a woman comes in and begins kissing his feet, the feet of a rabbi, of a teacher... That's why it was so appalling to them. You don't teach women. That was, that was the, the rule of the day. The Greek poets equated women with evil. Remember Pandora and her box? It was a woman who opened up the box and let evil into the world, according to Greek mythology. Roman women, was also their status was also very low. Roman law placed a wife under the absolute control of her husband who had ownership of her and all her possessions. He could divorce her if she went out in public without a veil. A husband had the power of life and death over his wife, just as he did his children. And as with Greeks, Roman women were not allowed to speak in public. Jewish women as well were barred from public speaking. The oral law prohibited women from reading the Torah out loud. And worship was segregated in the synagogue, with women never allowed to be heard. Yet what does what what Paul talk about when, when he gets into the New Testament? He talks about women being involved in the worship service. And, and women uh, being present in worship and serving in worship. The New Testament carried this on and expounded on it. Peter encouraged women to see themselves as valuable before God. His call to aspire to inner beauty of trusting and tranquil spirit, it's, it was staggeringly countercultural. He wrote this. He said, 
women, your beauty should not come from outward adornment like braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Until this time, no one had told women they were of great worth. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. Equally staggering is his call to men to elevate their wives with respect and understanding. You know what else Peter says? He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Consideration, respect, fellow heirs. That's how women were viewed in Scripture. That's how they're viewed by Jesus. That's how they're viewed by God. Equal with men. The Apostle Paul was often accused of being a misogynist who hates women and fears women, but his teachings on women reflect the created order and God's value that he places on women for husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 as he talks about it being an illustration of our relationship with God. It was an earthly illustration. Women were so prevalent throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, Compared to any other writings of that day, it's unbelievable. Author uh, Dorothy Sayers, ever heard of her? She was a friend of C.S. Lewis, and she wrote this. She has said, perhaps it's no wonder that women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, and there has never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged them, who never flattered or or coaxed or patronized them, who never made... uh, Uh, crass jokes about them, never treated them either as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. He he was never antagonistic towards women or a, a player towards women. He never rebuked without uh, who, who, he wasn't one of those guys who rebuked without quarrelousness and praised without condescension. He, he took their questions and arguments seriously. He never mapped out their sphere for them. He never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female. Who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. He took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. And the result of that, the effects on culture for the role of women because of the work of Jesus on the cross and his ministry, it's unbelievable when you compare it to the culture of that day. Christianity spread throughout the world. It declared equal worth and value for both men and women. Husbands were commanded not to beat their wives, but to love them and not to exasperate their children. These principles were in direct conflict with the Roman institution of patria potestas. Potesta, excuse me. You know what that was? That gave absolute power of life and death to a man over his family. When that, you know, you know why that... Uh, the word I'm looking for, but that policy or that uh, uh, social norm, you know why that was repealed in Roman culture? Because of an emperor later who had a strong foundation in Christian ethic who repealed it. Because of the influence of Christianity, that was repealed. The biblical view of husbands and wives as equal partners, it caused a sea change in marriage. Christian women started marrying later and they married men of their choosing. This eroded the ancient practice of men marrying child brides against their will, often sometimes as young as 10 or 11. And the greater marital freedom that Christianity gave women eventually gained wide appeal. Today, a Western woman is not compelled compelled to marry someone she does not want to, nor can she legally be married as a child bride. 
But do you know the practice continues in parts of the world where Christianity hasn't taken root to this day? Another effect of the salt and light of Christianity was its impact on the common practice of polygamy, which demeans women. It demeans women completely. Many men, including biblical heroes, had multiple wives. Yet when Jesus comes on the scene, he makes clear that that was never God's intention. He says, no, it was one man, one wife, one lifetime. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That was it. That was the idea for biblical marriage. And Jesus makes that clear. Clearly, because of their sin, they had adopted other practices of their culture. But Jesus says, no, 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 let's get back to what it really is. One man, one woman, one lifetime. And as a result of Jesus and his teaching, women in the world today, especially in the West, enjoy more privileges and rights than at any other time in history. And it only takes just a short trip to to some of those Arab nations today to see the effect that Christianity has had on culture and that Jesus has had. And it's not a stretch then to say, that Jesus and the dawn of Christianity has done more to advance the standing and honor of women than anything else in history. And this week we see Jesus serving and doing ministry with women. Now, having said all that, why do people still look at Christianity and say, ah, it's a misogynistic religion? Those people, they hate women. And trust me, with the election coming up, my my guess would be we're going to hear more and more of that in our culture and in the news and in the media. Uh, it's just one of the, they just hate women. They're just putting women down. Well, I, I think part of it, one primary reason is because sinful, people are sinful, including Christians. And the truth is that there have been Christians who have wrongly <laughs> acted, not on what Jesus said, but, but out of their own selfish desires. Even some church fathers, only 100, 200 years after Jesus, reverted back to some false teachings about women. Clement taught that uh, in the second century, women should blush because she's, women, she's a woman. Tertullian and others, they blamed women for the fall of mankind. They said women are the devil's gateway. Augustine, in the fourth century, Augustine was a brilliant guy, brilliant theologian, but he had this one wrong. He, he, he claimed even in the fourth century that the image of God in women was less than the image of God in man. That's simply not true. That's simply not true. And others in our day have taken the word of God and twisted it. That's part of the reason people look at Christianity and they say, no, it's a misogynistic religion. They just, they hate women. Part of the reason for that is because other sinful men and women, even in our own day, have taken God's word and twisted it. And a lot of this happens in the home. A lot of this happens because of, it stems from misunderstandings of Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, do you know what Paul writes? He says this, he says, husbands... This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave his life up for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. But right prior to this, Paul had actually said, husbands, you're the head of the home. You're the head of the home. And sadly, some guys hear that, and you know what they think? Oh, okay, I'm king. This is my castle. I'm going to rule, and I'm going to reign. That's not what Paul said. That's not what Jesus taught. Men, you, you are the head of your home. You are not the king of your home. All right? You are not the king. And if you are, it better be a benevolent kingship where you're a very benevolent king. You're not the king of your home. You're the head of it. Be careful, cause, guys, because this is where it often goes wrong is with us. Some guys hear that and they think God declares them to be the ruler. And guys who think this have historically been referred to and have proven themselves to be idiots. I'm just being clear. It's true. As the husband men, you need to be careful not to be an idiot. Would you agree? 
Ladies, would you agree? Yeah. Men, listen, God declares you to be the head. He's not declaring you to be the ruler, authority, Christ, and king of your home. That job's already taken, and it's taken by Jesus Christ. He is the ruler, head, authority, king. You're simply his head in that home. You represent him in the way that he loves in that home. So instead, when God says you're the head, he's simply calling you to love and serve and care for your wife like Jesus does the church. So how did Jesus love and serve the church? Well, if you've got your Bible, maybe you turn to Matthew 20 quick. 20 verses 25 through 28. Jesus says this. He says, you know that the rulers in this world, they lord it over their people. See, the, the idiot men in their home, they lord it over their wives and their kids. And you're like, that's kind of strong. That's kind of harsh. It is harsh because, guys, you got to hear this. You're not to lord it over your wife and your kids in your home. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, Jesus says, it will be different. And whoever wants to be a leader among you, they must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become a slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So men, as the head of the home, you're to lay down your life for your wife. You're to lay down your, your life for your children. As the head, what that simply means is you bear the greater responsibility. You bear the greater responsibility. You're not in charge. You're not ruling. You're not king. You just bear a greater responsibility. So some examples of that. When, when things are rough at home and there's, there's family conflict, guess who steps in to try to mediate things? If no one else has, men, you better be stepping up and doing that, right? If, if finances are tight and somebody's got to get a second job, man, I hope you're the one who's stepping up to get the second job first, not sending your wife out to work. You bear the greater responsibility. That's all I'm trying to say. That's what it means to be the head, okay? And the question isn't if you're the head of your home. Guys, we all know we are. Jesus said we are. He said we are. It's just the question, are we going to be a good head? Like Jesus is a good head of the church. We're going to fail. I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. But in the end, guys, strive to this. Love your wife like Jesus does. Serve her like Jesus does. Honor her like Jesus does. Protect her like Jesus does. Do everything to present her perfect and holy and blameless in the end like Jesus will. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, ladies, as a Christian wife, here's... Here's some other teaching for you that sometimes people twist and they say, see the church, they hate women. They look at what Paul, or excuse me, Peter writes in his first letter in Peter chapter three, verses one and four. And he's describing it, how you should relate to your husbands. And, and it starts off like this. It says women or wives, excuse me, not women, wives, submit to your own husbands. I'm going to stop there because a lot of times when that gets read, people cringe. Oh, see, I knew it. I knew it was in there. Wives, submit to your husbands. But listen, let's pay attention to what it does not say. Pay attention to what it doesn't say. Read it carefully. God does not say women submit to men. Do you hear that? God does not say women submit to men. Ladies, God is not calling you to trust and submit to all men. God does not trust or submit to any man. (laughs) He's not calling you to trust and submit to all men. He does not say that. He's saying, wives, submit to your own husbands. We should also point out, God does not say, women, obey your husband. See, first off, he's not calling you to submit to all men. He's calling you to trust one man, your husband. One man. That's it. Just one. Just one. Just trust your husband. 
And he also doesn't say, women, obey your husband. This is where sometimes men take it. See, it says, obey me, submit to me, submit, woman. No, that's, that's idiot, right? The, the light's going off. It doesn't say that. God doesn't say, obey your husband. He says, submit, which means to trust him. Notice I keep saying trust. That's the idea of biblical marriage is you trust your husband. In addition, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.33. He says, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, so ladies, you're to respect your husband. You're not to belittle him, to make him feel little, <laughs> to not tear him down in public in front of others. If you've got a beef with him, then figure that out at home. But then in front of others, honor him. And as you honor him, I guarantee you, he's going to do a better job at leading and at caring for you and loving you. Be careful not to belittle him. I'll continue to read the rest of what Peter writes here from a paraphrase called The Message. He says, wives, be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There, there are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. And what matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God's del- God delights in. So really what the Bible's teaching about this is that, ladies, you're to submit to, to trust one man, your husband. One man. And men, you're to love that one woman like Jesus loves the church. You're to honor her and protect her and care for her and your family. And as you do that, she will have zero issue submitting to and trusting you. If you do that like Jesus does, there will be zero issue with her saying, okay, I trust you. I trust you. Yeah, let's make that decision. No issue. But when our culture looks at Christianity and they say, no, it's misogynistic, then they're either looking at the people who distort what God's word actually teaches, or a second thing, they don't understand maybe the doctrine of gender roles as it relates to the church. Now, this is a really super long introduction. Would you agree? We haven't even got to the passage yet. We'll move through it quick. But, but it's important to point out because Jesus, when he serves with women, he elevates women in their place in society and their place in the church to their rightful place, which is which equal with men. But, but the one thing you have to notice is that there are a few clarification God makes in his word as it relates to the role of men and women. Because we're created totally equal. Augustine had it wrong. Ladies, your value and worth before God is no different than mine. The way that you bear and reflect God's image is of the same value, dignity, and worth as the way that I do as a man. Okay? There's zero difference there. However, God, I believe, has created us differently. Clearly, right? Male and women. Men and women. Male and female. He's created us. We're different. And so there's some teaching in Scripture that Paul gives out, and, and he, he, he outlines what are the roles then of men and women being equal but different in the church and in the home. And notice as we talk about this doctrine of gender roles, we're talking about it in those two spheres, at home and in the church. We're not talking about it in terms of society. There, there's nothing in Scripture that would say, oh, a woman couldn't be president. No, there, there were great leaders who were women in Scripture. Case in point is Deborah. That could be a great thing. I'm not, that's not an endorsement for Hillary Clinton, okay? I'm just saying that, that women, in, there's nothing wrong with a woman being president or a leader of a company or, or industrious. We're going to see that the women this morning that Jesus serves with were very industrious. They had their own business. They gained their own wealth. They worked. They didn't just stay at home the whole time. Yet there are other women who are very, very godly who do, and that's great. But these gender roles, as we talk about them, we're talking about them in those two spheres, the church and at home. And and, and they, inter, they intermingle together. So, so here's what those are. I just, 
I wanted to settle that up and just explain this to you, just so you know where we kind of stand as a church and what these views are. And you need to know, we talk about things being either closed-hand or open-handed, right, in terms of what we believe. There are closed-fisted things that we hold in this fist, like, like the deity of Jesus Christ, like Jesus died on the cross for my sin, like the only way to heaven is through Jesus and no one else, and that's it, nothing else, faith alone, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, Right? And if we let go of those things, we're letting go of biblical Christianity, and we're going to swing our fist, and we're going to fight for those things. There's other things that we have convictions on that go in this open hand. And and we would look at the Bible and say, here's what we believe, and here's why, and we have a strong opinion on this, but it's open-handed, and if you disagree, we're not going to fight. (laughs) We're not going to swing this hand. We're only going to swing the closed fist. I would commend to you that I really believe that this issue of of gender role, for the most part, there's strong convictions one way or the other, and I have some strong convictions, uh, but it's ultimately an open-handed issue, that that we're not going to fight and divide or not associate or or even participate in ministry with other churches maybe who see this a little bit differently than us, okay? So here's the two views. Uh, The first one is called complementarianism, and the second one is called egalitarianism. Getting some, you're getting your big words done for the week here, okay? Here's the first one. Now, now, these two views, they both hold to this fact. Both of them hold that men and women are completely equal before the cross. They're 100% equal in value, worth, and dignity as image bearers of God. And there are very, very strong biblical scholars and, and pastors and others on each side of this issue. Men and women I respect completely who see this differently, Okay. But the two views, they differ in how they complete and carry on that definition. Here's how complementarian would do it. We're we're just about done with this, and we're moving into the text. Complementarian position would say, uh, yeah, men men and women are equal before the cross and equal in value, worth, and dignity as image bearers of God. However, God created men and women different to serve in different roles in the home and church. Therefore, therefore, while both are 100% equal in value, worth, and dignity, they also differ in their roles that are designed by God to complement one another, hence the term complementarian. That we're equal, but we're different. And we're different on purpose, to complement one another. And while we, we both have equal dignity and worth and value as image bearers, there is a certain sense where a woman images certain aspects of God's character that's different than maybe the way a man reflects it. And together we complement one another and we give a full picture of who God is. Does that make sense? Their differing activity and role does not affect their equality as image bearers. Now, here's the other view, egalitarian. It comes from the term equal, egalitarian. That's what that means. Furthermore, God has made, they would extend that and say, not only are men and women totally equal before the cross, but furthermore, God's made no distinction between men and women in their function and role. And to declare their roles different, and thus their activity is to diminish their equality. Any such role distinction in Scripture was culturally not biblically rooted and eradicated by the cross. Now, here's, here's basically what this boils down to. Just, I mean, we're just going to, I'm going to spare you the whole theological argument and just boil it right down to the two main issue at hand here. Really, the main issue that seems to come out from these two positions is, can a woman be a pastor or elder in God's church? The complementarian position would say, that uh, God has, designed, has created men and women completely and totally equal. But due to the created order, God's design, in other words, he's reserved the role of pastor elder for men alone. Egalitarian would say, no, men and women are totally equal, not only in the way they image God, but also in their function and in their role. 
And to, to limit their role is to say that they're not equal. So yeah, women could be pastors or elders. And that's really the defining kind of issue here that people come down to. Where can women serve? Can they be a pastor, elder, or not? And, and complementarian says, no, that's only for men. Egalitarian says, yes, they can serve in either role. Now, as a church, we would hold to that complementarian position. And I'll try to explain that here briefly, and then we'll dive into the text. And if you have more questions, let's talk about it, and I'll try to explain that to you. Um, we hold the compliment. I'm just going to read to you right from uh, some of the stuff that we've written about this. Obviously, the Bible holds to a complementarian view of gender roles, as we believe it's God's design and the position clearly taught in Scripture. We hold all human beings, male and female, bear God's image. It's this reality that gives every human being, male and female, equal worth, dignity, and standing before God. The dignity of every person is rooted in who they are, image bearers of God, not what they do or how they function. Number two, we also hold that while men and women are absolutely equal, God's designed and created us different. Male and female, he created them. As such, God has designed men and women with different roles in the home and in the church, and these roles are based on God's design and creation. They complement one another, and they bring great glory to God. And there's some passages of Scripture. So as it relates to the local church, then, we believe that the office of elder or pastor is reserved by God in Scripture to men alone. Aside from serving in the role of elder pastor, women are free and encouraged to serve in any other role in the church according to their spiritual gifting and God-giving ability. So to summarize it, men and women are totally equal, but we see their roles different. Now, these are two big pots to be dividing into, right? Complementarian and egalitarian. There's varying positions on either side of those. And there's even other positions outside of that. In complementarianism... I tend to lean as close to that line of egalitarianism as you can get. <laughs> That's because I just I don't see any other role limited to women other than the role of pastor elder. In other words, and, and as a church we see this, I, 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 there's, there's nothing that I see in Scripture that says a woman cannot uh, serve in ministry by leading worship on a Sunday morning. It's, it's actually it's kind of funny to me when we have women who, who are singing, and sometimes if I'm not singing and they lead for a little bit, everybody gets quiet. And they just listen to her. And I don't blame, but just, just sing along. But I don't blame you at the same time if you're listening to her because she sounds better than me. Because that's usually the case. And you're like, oh, wow, what is that? That's, what's that lovely sound? But, but we have no issue with that. We, we have no issue with women serving communion. We have no issue with women serving in ministry and, and serving in our children's ministry and our student ministry and leading Bible studies, all that sort of stuff. There, there's just one spot, and that's the office of elder pastor. I believe that Scripture gives evidence of women who are serving as deacons. Now, people argue with me and disagree with me on that, and that's okay. But that's what I see. In fact, the word we're going to see here that describes these women this morning is the exact same word that the New Testament in Acts that Luke uses for the office of deacon, diakono, diakonos. That's how we're going to see it. That's how he describes these women. He calls them deacons. But elder, the primary leader, the head, just like in the home, by God's design, we would hold that that's a man now. If you differ with me on that, it's open-handed. All we're going to ask of you, if you're part of our church, we're not going to fight over that one. <laughs> we're not going to divide over that. But then you know, as we go to hire more pastors, that that's, we're looking for men to fill that role just because we believe that that's what God's Word teaches. Does that mean we'd never hire a woman in a ministry position on staff? No, it doesn't. Just that office of elder pastor, okay? All right. We talked a long time about that, didn't we? For a just to set up our passage. That's okay, we're going to move through it quick. But let, let, me, let me refer you to two things here before you go on. If, if you want to learn more about this, I'd refer you to this book called uh, uh, Biblical Foundations for Manhood and Womanhood uh, by a guy by the name of Rick, uh, Wayne Grudem. 
Um, yeah, I skipped a slide there on you, Rachel. I've already talked too long, so I'm going to move forward. Actually, you know what? Go back to that really quick. I'm going to talk about this really quick. Because here's, here's where I see this difference, and I think this might be helpful. And in, in why, why you say, Josh, but how do you say they're equal, but they can't serve in that role? Well, here's, here's why. The, the question comes down to, is activity or identity primary? Activity or identity, do you know what I mean? Is it who you are or what you do that's primary? In other words, some would say your activity, what you do, determines who you are. In other words, because I preach, I'm a pastor. The flip side would say, no, your identity determines what you do. It determines your activity. And that would say, no, because I'm a pastor, I preach. Because, because I paint things, this is activity, I'm a painter. Determines my identity. No, maybe it's because you're a painter, you paint things. Which one is it? Which one's primary, activity or identity? And I would argue that identity is primary. That you don't, in other words, like some people then would say wrongly, they teach that, well, you, because you do good things, you're a Christian. And I would say, no, because you're a Christian, you do good things. And the egalitarian position, in my opinion, and there's, there's people who could totally shoot me down and destroy my argument here, right? But in my opinion, what they're saying is that activity is primary, and because a woman can't do that, well, then she can't really be equal with a man. And it's just that one, it's, it's just one thing. That's it. But, but really what the Bible says, no, is because of who you are, because who God has made you to be as an image bearer, that's your identity. Your activity flows from that. In a nutshell, a handful of you who are still with me, there you go. Let's go on. Acts, or Luke chapter 8. But this book is, is, is a really helpful resource. This guy who wrote it, he was a professor at Trinity, which is the Ephraim Seminary in Chicago. And he actually, he lives this out. He, he actually left his job, moved to Phoenix with his wife because of her health, because he wanted to honor and love his wife. So you're not reading this from a guy on a complimentary position who's like, thumb down. Nope, not at all. He, he uprooted his ministry and his career to serve and love his wife. All right, verse one. Soon afterward, after Josh completed his crazy long introduction, Jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. And what I want you to see here this morning is this, that male, female, young, old, no matter who you are, single, married, it does not matter. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, or what's been done to you, when you repent and you turn to Jesus, he makes you new. And he is able and excited to use you to build his kingdom. It does not matter who you are. God uses you to build his kingdom. God uses you to serve in ministry. And when it relates to women serving in ministry, I would argue, guys, they're doing a whole lot more than many of you, sadly. We need more men to step up and serve in ministry. He's excited and able to use anyone. So let's look at the first woman. We're going to look at these three women that, that Luke mentions who are alongside Jesus. Also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. The first one he mentions is Mary called Magdalene. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. Mary Magdalene is, is the first, and I would suggest to you that she reminds us that Jesus heals and uses the afflicted. Jesus heals and uses the afflicted, both men and women. She, she was called Magdalene because she was from a town called uh, Magdala or Magdala. She's Mary from Magdala, Mary Magdalene. I always, when I was growing up, I always got so confused that there, were more than one, there was more than one Mary in the New Testament. Uh, you know, you'd have the flannel graph back in my day, 
And, and you, you hear the story, and this Mary, and wait, I thought she was married. This is Mary too? Who's Mary? Which one's Mary? Well, this is Mary Magdalene. Oh, I was so confused. But maybe, and then I thought, you know, somebody explained it to me one time. Well, Josh, in your class, I went to a small school. There were like, I don't know, 60 people in, our, in my high school class. One guy's name was Josh. My name was Josh. There were two Joshes. He was Josh T on all of his papers, and I was Josh W. Well, she's Mary M., and the other Mary, Jesus' mother, was Mary of Nazareth. So maybe she really should have been called Mary Nazarene, like Mary Magdalene in Bible. She's Mary N. I don't know if that helps you. Helped me when I was little. Maybe it doesn't help you. But there you go. Mary Magdalene, though. And, and she, we find out from Luke here, she was possessed by seven demons. That's to demonstrate the, the amount of affliction that she had. And Jesus healed her from all of it. From all of it. He rescued her. And in every list that Mary Magdalene is mentioned in Scripture, guess what order she appears in? In every list, first. Do you know why? Many believe that maybe Mary Magdalene actually helped lead in ministry alongside Jesus. It was probably, possibly because of her being so well-known and, and she had different authority, different responsibilities in terms of how she served in ministry that she was always listed first. She was influential. Jesus took this woman who was possessed by seven demons, highly afflicted, and he says, come with me, serve with me in ministry. Lead with me. Why don't you take over this ministry for me? Why don't you lead this under my authority for me, for my kingdom? And that's what happened. That's pretty amazing. Now, there were other, there were other teachers in Jesus' day who had women follow them, but you know who they were? They were often cult leaders and guys who would manipulate women and use them towards their own end. But not Jesus. He doesn't manipulate or use them or stifle the women he comes along. He releases them into ministry. And he says, go serve. Go serve. Build the kingdom. And that's what I believe he does with Mary Magdalene. And every time she shows up, she's listed first. Some people equate her with the woman we saw last week, but there's no reason to equate her with a prostitute. There, there's nowhere that that shows up in the, in the text. There's no evidence from it in the, in the text or even in, in church history. But... If, if you look at Mary, she's, she's always serving along Jesus. She, she honors Jesus by, putting, by buying a pound of perfume and, and anointing his feet with it later in Scripture. She loved him because of the way that she served alongside him and the way that he cared for her and released her in ministry. He treated her like no other man had ever treated her. That's incredible. Now, some, now don't watch too much History Channel because the History Channel would tell you that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. There is zero evidence anywhere in antiquity that Jesus was married. Zero. That's all speculation. Okay? So we can talk more about that if you're watching too much History Channel. But Jesus was not married. He was not. Sensational, like everything else in our culture, he wasn't married. Here's the second woman that, that Luke mentions. Verse 3. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager... This, I would argue, when we see Joanna, Jesus mentions her, that Jesus not only heals and uses the afflicted, he forgives and uses the influential. Ladies, there's some of you in our church who are very influential in our community, who are very influential in our county, in the ways that you serve, in the ways that you work, in, in different organizations, and even in your vocation. And you need to know you're, you're like Joanna. Her husband was a household manager for Herod. She had access to some of the great leaders of that day in culture. And Jesus, take her, and, and, and she served alongside Jesus, and Jesus uses the influential. In fact, Joanna actually shows up one other time in Scripture. Do you know where she shows up? She shows up later uh, going to the tomb 
And, and she's there, it's either at the tomb or at the cross. Basically, Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, she's there as a witness with him. And what's curious is that this woman, who is so influential, all, all the men bailed on Jesus, all of his disciples. Who was there with him at the cross? The women. The women stuck beside him. And they were faithful. The men became cowards and ran. And then there's Susanna. You're like, who's Susanna? I heard a song about her. But I don't know who she is. This is the only time she shows up. I don't either, because this is the only time she shows up in the Bible. She doesn't show up anywhere else, but some, for some reason Luke mentions her. You know what that encourages me to note? That no matter who I am, no matter who I am, Jesus welcomes and uses anyone who would come to him. Suzanne is just a common woman. And in fact, then Luke mentions, he said, and there were many others. In addition to Susanna, who, who served alongside Jesus in ministry. And, and this last line, here, I guess here's the thing to notice. It says many others. It wasn't only men serving. It was men and women. It wasn't just the leader's job to do ministry. It was everyone's job to do ministry. It was everyone's job to serve. The leaders went and served, but serving and doing ministry wasn't just their job. It was, it was everyone's job. And then these women, it says, they provided for them, for Jesus and the disciples, for the ministry, in other words, out of their means. Well, that word provided is actually the word uh, deaconos or diakonon. And that's the same word that means, you've heard it in English, deacon. Which what it really means is to serve or to provide for someone. To serve someone is to be a deacon. To serve someone in ministry is, is to be, is to de- I'm, I'm going to deacon, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to provide. And these women, some translations even say they served them out of their means. They provided for them out of their means. And I would argue that these women, they provided not just with their time talent, but also their treasure. That really what's in view here, Luke is saying that uh, they, they opened up their checkbook and, and they gave to the ministry. And we get a glimpse here to see how Jesus carried on in ministry. It was by the faithful support of people. And especially here, some industrious women. The people mentioned, it's rarely mentioned how people gave to Jesus' ministry, but you know who some of them were? It was some of the women who, who clearly must have had good jobs, who must have done a good job at providing. It must have been industrious in some way, shape, or form. And, and they gave out of their means. But listen, it's not just giving out of your financial means. They gave clearly of their time and their talent as well. They spent time with Jesus. They went alongside. When we say give generously, we're not just talking about your checkbook. We're saying give generously of your time. What's some of your time? Do you have time to serve? A lot of, a lot of leaders went with our students last week. They gave of their time to hang out with our students. They lost time of sleep to hang out with our students. There's others who serve in ministry. They give of their talent. Have you noticed all the Spanish translation week after week? That, that's thanks to grace. And grace gives of her talent because she's talented in that way. She's able to serve. God's gift given her that ability. What, what are some of your talents? Do you serve and do you give generously of your talents? And then your treasure. Here's the thing. As we go away today, just remember, Jesus is willing to use anyone and everyone. He's excited to and able to. No matter what you've done, what's been done to you, who you are, where you're from, your age, your gender, your marital status. 
He's willing and excited to use you in ministry if you'd simply turn to him and come to him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll take our offering, we'll sing, and we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thank you for his example in the ways that he served alongside and elevated the status of women and the example that he gives us to do the same. Um, Lord, it's clear that, that Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life, totally flipped culture on its head. He totally changed uh, things, really trying to, to, in bringing his kingdom, restoring things to your original design that, that were equal but different, but we are equal. And I, I pray for the men in our church. Help us to demonstrate that in the ways that we, we treat our wives, we treat our children, and the ways we treat women in general in the workplace and in society that no one would ever look at us as an example of someone where they could find evidence of Christianity somehow being wrongly misogynistic. But instead they'd look at us and they go, I don't believe those claims because he's a Christian and I see the way he treats his wife. I see the way he treats his kids. I see the way he treats me. Let us do so like Jesus does. Father, I pray for the women of our church. I pray for them that you would... um, encourage them. I pray that they would never feel or, or be made to, to feel uh, looked down upon or of less worth or of, of unable to serve or to lead in ministry. But instead, might you encourage them to step up and serve more and more like the example of these women that we saw in Luke. Thank you, Jesus, for your example. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. And um, let us leave change today, encouraged that you're not done with us no matter who we are. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.